All right, so uh, let's just start by this. You know, three, as you were listening uh, to each other, anything um, come flying into your mind there? Like, ooh, I want to hear just a little bit more about that, or I, I have a question about that. I did. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was listening to you, and you said sort of the, the tipping point of that story is that your faith has made you well. So he's, he's saying you did something mm -hmm. that released something, and it puts me in tension. Yeah. When I hear that, because um, I've thought a lot lately about transactional versus mm -hmm. a transformational relationship with Jesus, and I recognize that most of us have a transactional relationship. If I do this, then you'll give me this. Even when we think we're not, we're doing it. Mm -hmm. So I heard you say that, and it put me back into that place again. So what is the place of the thing that we offer, the yeah. thing that he asks us to do, and, yeah. and the thing that won't happen unless we put that thing on the table? And how does that work exactly? Yeah. So it just made me ponder it again. I was just wondering if yeah. you do the same. Um, one, of my, one of my favorite things about this story is that it's one of those stories within a story. And the woman is celebrated for her gift of faith that she brings to the table. But my favorite uh, twist is the dead girl cannot bring a gift of faith to the table. And she's also healed. And so it seems like a, a both and, and that really kind of affirms a kingdom view of just that, you know, yes, healing, um, but not necessarily under our, our terms. But God, God has a yes to that healing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's good. I have a question for you, Rick. Um, as you were talking about the difference between message and medium. Um, I think I know what you were saying, but can you just unpack that a little bit more about, you know, when you look at Jesus as the message giver or the, the medium giver, what, I know you only had eight minutes, so yeah. I was trying to read into like all the stuff you wanted to say. So yeah. could you help just kind of explain that? Yeah, I, I, I think I resonated with what Dave Schmelzer said earlier today, that he was trying to get at something about uh, the nature of our relationship with Jesus and whether it's mediated primarily up here um, by the way we study things, the way we understand his teachings, the way we parse it out, the way we, um, you know, split it apart and dissect it and try so this, um, Can you just, let's just use just that mic. So just turn yours off. This okay. Was a, or a dog, whatever it is yeah. in here. Okay, good. Yeah, leave that one on and we can just uh, share that one mic. You'll turn yours off, Rick. Sorry, I was having like an OCD moment there. Uh, All right. So anyway, um, I, I think what I was hearing and what Dave was saying is the same thing that I'm saying, which is there's something past this place of uh, passive distancing in our relationship with Jesus to a place of actual experience of him, where he becomes an experiential reality that invades every aspect of your life so like, for instance, a lot of times people say, it's ridiculous to ask Jesus to find you a parking space. That's just, you know, we shouldn't. and I'm like, why not? So if it matters to me, why doesn't it matter to him? So why can't I say, I'd really love a parking spot right now, Jesus, and then deal with the grief when I don't get it, you know? I mean, it's, it's, it's I guess what I'm saying is the, the medium of Jesus, it's, he's not just a message, he's real. 
And he shows up in real ways in our lives. And sometimes we miss that. I know I have for a lot of my life. I've missed the fact that he wants to be present now to me. And when he is, he overshadows all of his teachings, really. He is the teaching himself. I don't know if that helps, but... So, Andy, um, you're talking about, you know, this, this incredible experiment you're doing where you're bringing these Muslim kids and families into your camp, uh, a camp that's uh, populated by a bunch, primarily a bunch of, like, evangelical teenagers and their families. Like, how are you navigating, like, I'm just imagining, like, how people's paradigms are just getting blown up and how uh, messy and beautiful that probably is, but, like, how are you navigating that? What does that look it's like? It's really messy. Yeah, I yeah. Know. There's lots of emails and lots of letters and lots of. <laughs> what are you doing? Um, but I think the um, what I'm trying to resonate with is the whole fear component that I've that I've been writing about is that fear really controls us, and it um, shackles us to being able to move through the world. And so um, I've been working with this idea of fear and isolation, and how fear actually drives us to this point of loneliness. And, and, and we, then we create this echo chamber of truth that just talks about what we know to be right and true about the world while there's a whole other world out there that exists. And so as we continue to isolate and isolate, we get more and more lonely. And then we, and then we wonder why we're in the deepest, darkest night of our soul and we have no real community around us. And you can specifically see that with students um, from about 15 to 25. It's really a plague because they say, I want to be a part of a community, or they'll even say, I am a part of a community. But when they really talk about, you know, are they really engaged in submitting their lives to one another? Oftentimes not, because they're, they're scared to death. You know, whether it's, you believe something different than me, or I, you know, I'm afraid that you might out me in something, or whatever. There's just this real funky isolation. So that's, a, that's sort of the philosophical thing that we're trying to accomplish, is let's break down the barriers and walls of fear that is just obvious. It's obvious that America is afraid of, you know, terrorism and yeah. Islam and global jihad. So let's try to break that down and see if we can find a space of peace. Yeah. Question for Andy. Um, you know, I was really struck by the detail you you shared about asking to be invited over to a Saudi Arabian uh, family's house, and kind of what's been going on in my mind is just this whole kind of a theology of hospitality or like how exactly do we approach or think about hospitality and you know the word host is both for like the host the eucharist um, but it also originally was the same word for stranger and my theory is we can only do the kind of hospitality that Jesus is talking about when we allow ourselves to be hosted mm. by someone else. And it's, it's ultimately a different thing. To, it's easier or maybe too easy to ask someone to come over to our house. So I'd love to hear you, how, how you thought about that. Sounds like you've yeah. lived that. Yeah. yeah, so I didn't think that's smart at all. <laughs> <laughs> I was just interested in knowing some Saudi Arabian Muslims and <laughs> and um, no, but it's interesting and culturally if you spend any time in the Middle East what you find is that hospitality and family are a, are a thread in the culture that we don't have so when students come over here and we say what's the biggest difference between America and the Middle East they're often refer back to family unit where 
where we, you know, if they're, if they're throwing a dinner, everybody in the block's coming and 99% of them are family. And they say, you guys are isolationists and individual. And that's a very dramatic difference. So if you walk down the street, oftentimes, whether you're in Bethlehem or, or some of the surrounding areas, you'll find if you walk down the street and there's a dinner going on, you'll probably get invited in as a total stranger. And, and there's kind of an expectation that because you're from America, that you would invite them to come to stay at your house and they'll come, you know? And so there's just a, I don't know, I don't know if I'm as, I don't know if I'm answering your question. I, I, I just think that it's, it's the hospitality piece is important for us to revisit, whether it's a theological basis or just, hey, we're human on the planet and let's hang together, you know? Yeah, that's good. If you have a question too, you can make your way up and uh, the microphone here is on and we'll integrate those in. So please head over there or this is gonna get pretty awkward here in a second. <laughs> So. Can I ask while you're coming, I would like to ask Kathy as I was sitting and listening to you, um, since I do deal with students that are in an, in an environment or in a culture where justice is a part of, it's a part of their ethos right now. It seems like everybody wants to attach themselves to a mission or a justice to something, whether it's clean water wells in Africa or the human trafficking issue or feeding or, you know, all these triple bottom line companies are popping up and entrepreneurs are, are, are getting in on the action. What do you think is the... What's the biggest barrier that you see from this sort of the next generation getting involved in justice issues and actually accomplishing real life goals? Like what's the, what's the biggest burden that you yeah. face or have faced? Yeah. Um, I'd say maybe three things. One, on the, on the plus side, we have such a better understanding and awareness, particularly the younger generation of all of the injustices in the world. So that's a win, that's a plus. We are a more integrated global society. But, you know, that term slacktivism, um, it has made it too easy for people to say, I've responded or I've done something about the 12 injustices that I got notifications on my Facebook for today. Um, and and so with that, too, I, I've been really encouraging young people to, to not feel like calling is connected to solving one particular problem. Like there's that perfect injustice that you could solve, and if you don't find it, then your life doesn't mean anything. And so just trying to take that step back from finding your perfect cause to finding discipleship, and, and I think it's Eugene Peterson who talks about um, a long obedience in the same direction. So it's not it's nothing new, but it, it seems like a new language for, for students and, or for, for young people. And then three, um, I feel like what I've noticed in in young people is a true fear of failure. So just going back to even your theme of fear, and if, if we make it, if, if we make it so safe that no one can fail, then they don't, then they feel they just have to find that one perfect thing, and there's no space to try stuff out. And so just encouraging folks like, hey, you know what, just try it. And if it fails, that's okay. Like, we'll try something else. And just, I don't know, that's discipleship again for, as I see it. I don't know if you mm. 
yeah, I have two teenagers in my house, and it, you, you probably know that um, service, justice issues, um, mission, all of these things are ubiquitous in their world, and they're often not connected to any um, institution of faith whatsoever. It's, it's just expected. In fact, if you want to get into a good school or get a scholarship or have any hope of that, you better have on your resume community service everywhere. And I know for my daughter, who loves Jesus, my oldest daughter just loves Jesus, she's passionate about him, but she also identifies herself as someone who helps others, and she does way more of this than I could even consider when I was a teenager. But sometimes in the back of my mind, I wonder, um, is all of this um, three things? Is it a, a checkoff box that you have to do within our culture now to be considered a good person? Number two is, is it um, a way of identifying yourself by doing good to others? Um, and then the third thing is, does it matter? Does it matter why they are motivated to help others? Does it matter to Jesus why they're motivated to help others? I, I can't answer that question completely. All I know is that in, my, in the depth of my heart, I believe that these are, these are acts that overflow out of a passion for Jesus when you're caught up in him. And I'm most relaxed when I see that happening and I'm, I feel nervous when I don't. And maybe that's just my problem. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe I'm too wrapped up or something, but I know it, it's a question that I have in the back of my mind, especially with a generation of young people who are expected to do this. So anyway, I would love to hear whatever thoughts either sure. one of you. Sure, I think we have a, a question right oh. here. Hi, uh, my name's Scott. Uh, Andy, could you tell us a story about how Jesus impacted the life of one of the campers at Kivu, uh, whether it's a Muslim kid or just American kid or whatever? Uh, the um, well, it's easy. It's easy. It's way easier. Christian camping, in a nutshell, is supposed to be a formulaic equation where you send your kid off, and the first day all the kids get really happy and they jump around, and then the second day they do some adventure, and then the third day they kind of lay over some spirit. The fourth day we lay on the guilt and shame, so by the fifth day we can bring them down and get saved. <laughs> and if you don't do that, then you're outside the boundary of Christian camping. So um, <laughs> I find that deeply not compelling. <laughs> and so... Um, so when we bought, when we brought, when we started on this adventure of bringing Middle Eastern Muslims to the camp, um, my Dallas board member said, um, you have to tell all the Christians that there will be a Muslim in the camp. And I said, why? Your kid was pretty jacked up when she came. And, um, and he didn't find that very funny. And so... Um, so our initial, it was, it was a monumental task to bring Muslims to the camp. It was so hard to convince American Christians that it's okay, that teenagers are teenagers, no matter where they're from, no matter what they're into, they're dealing with the same music, they're dealing with the same issues, they're dealing with the same loneliness, they're dealing with the same, um, the, this purposefulness of faith. And so we, we worked through all those issues, and then right before they came in, I forgot to take pork off the menu. And so I ran down to the kitchen, and I'm like, we're not doing sausage or hot dogs or anything. Like, none of that. And the cooks are looking at me like, are you crazy? And I was like, don't put it out. Don't cook it. We're not doing it. It's over. And so as the van came in with the load of the Muslim kids that just got off the plane, the, the leaders got off, and they, you know, they're looking around like, wow, this place is amazing. This is awesome. And I said, I just remembered. 
we just took pork, like literally 30 seconds ago, I just took pork off the menu. I'm so sorry. We didn't talk about this and didn't think about it. And literally the leader's eyes just got really big. And, and she said, you'd do that for us? And I went, well, you're my guest. We're going to, absolutely. And, and we've got a place if you need to pray, you can go over here and pray. And you'd do that for us? And through the two weeks of the students being there, that, just that little gesture of, of I'm thinking about you and not just about running my program, totally created a friendship. So now when I go to Amman and I interact with the students that have been at our place from Jordan, it's like a party. It's like they invite all their friends and all their parents and they're like, and the parents are going, send our kids to that guy, you know? And I'm like, wow, we're talking about Jesus. We don't care. Whatever you're doing, do that more, you know? <laughs> so, um, so anyway, there's one. Yeah, it's good. So we could sit here and just kind of, oh, here, here we, well, here we go. Look at that. Hi, Dave. Hi. <laughs> I'm Melanie. Um, this is a question I would love to ask any of you that have spoken already. What is something you do on a regular basis so that it's not just head knowledge, it's affecting your day-to-day? -day? Okay, I'll, I'll take a shot at that. Um, a friend of mine, close friend of mine, uh, that I was involved in a very uh, depthy way of engaging small groups of people. One day he uh, uh, had planned a prayer time and he modeled a way of praying that rocked my world and changed forever the way I pray with people. I'm an elder at my church. People come up after the service to pray with me. This is how I pray with them now. So what he did, this is gonna sound so ridiculously simple, but, but we typically pray uh, as controlling people. So typically how this happens is somebody says, would you pray for me? And then we say, what do you need prayer for? And they tell us, and then we brainstorm. What my friend did was he said, I'm going to pray for you, but I'd rather you not tell me what you need first. I'm going to pause for a little bit and just ask Jesus what you really need. And then after I feel like I have got some direction from him, I'm going to pray. And he did that. And it was amazing how quickly I made the transition. That night, Never prayed for people ever again the same way in the last eight years. And now I have people come and they want prayer. And I say, um, I'm a little weird and eccentric. So um, what I'm going to do is be silent for at least 30 seconds until I have some direction from Jesus. And then I'll pray based on that direction. But it's up to you to decide whether this resonates with you when I pray. And I do this. And most often what happens is beyond addressing their need, what happens is they realize Jesus is real because I've just said something I shouldn't know. And his presence becomes real, and it's, it goes back to what I was saying before. The medium of the message is what heals them. It's not as much what I've just prayed. It's the fact that Jesus cares about their detail and would go through me to try to show them that. So that's a daily practice for me. Mm. Yeah, Catherine, do you want one thing that you do to help move things into your heart? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I, I have a lot of thoughts. I have, like, my mind is riddled with thoughts in terms of, you know, what, what, what is justice making and how, how does that really work beyond a great idea? Like, oh, God wants us all to be in his, you know, oikos, his home, his economy. And it really, when, when, when it touches ground in real life, pastoring day to day, 
it takes a little bit more time than you think. Uh, kind of like how the woman messed up Jairus's plan. Um, you know, a few months ago after church on Sunday, it's uh, after the third service, and it's like, it is time, it is time to go home to watch the Eagles game. And there's a, uh, there was a, a first time visitor who came and she was pretty frantic and needed, you know, she, did, she really needed help. She, she could not go back home and she said, you know, I heard that your church offers emergency housing, um, so I, I, I need housing again. And uh, I helped to oversee the systems for our church, so I'm like, let me just look in the computer to see if she's asked for help before. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so, lo and behold, she had already received this emergency housing, and we have a policy. It's like, you know, you get it once. And so, uh, so the, the lead pastor and I, we engage, and she tells us, proceeds to tell us her story for about an hour and a half, like why she needs this housing, to which then we powwow for another half an hour. And at the end of that long half hour, I'm giving, I'm giving Mark my, like, no, 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 we got to get to the root cause, you know, like we can't just put another Band-Aid on this. And he's like, Kathy, the Eagles game, you know? <laughs> can't we just make this problem go away? And that's where it starts getting sticky. Like, can't we just make this problem go away? And I said, ah, oh, well, if Jesus is who he says he is, and if, Jesus, if, if the way that I am understanding Jesus is the way um, we're supposed to follow him, like, I don't, I don't think we can get out of this one that easily. And so we re-engage her. She... Uh, realizes there's other details that she has left out in the first hour and a half, and so we actually talk for another hour. And at, at the end of um, so at the end of that, what we finally decide is just to ask her, "What is it that you really want? <laughs> what is it that you really want?" And she said, "Oh, I actually I just really want to go home." And so Mark, the lead pastor escorted her home, something that he would just, it just took a lot more time and it took a lot more effort, but she didn't need emergency housing and she was able to feel safe, but it just took a really long time, <laughs> in a good way, in a kingdom way. Yeah. As I was listening to you and to Sarah's story, I was just reminded, you know, this, say that Jesus lived a life that was interruptible. You know, and I would imagine that if most of us think about it, some of our favorite stories of Jesus, there's a good chance that they're stories that happened. Not that were planned, but they happened in an interruption, right? And so there's something, there's something really powerful about living like that. And I appreciate the, the reminder. So, and you want to? Cap us off there. Anything you want to share about a practice, something that you do to move things into your heart? Um, I th think it's um, a lost art for many Christians in to, um, to practice contemplative meditation. And, uh, and so I, I have a friend in my town. I live in Durango, Colorado. So those of you who know Durango, it's weird. 
and there's a lot of spirit people there, and they're all looking for something, and none of it is Jesus, or so they say. And so, um, so I have a lot of friends in a lot of different traditions. And so one of my dear friends is, um, is an American Buddhist. And, and so I said, you guys know how to pray pretty well. You know how to stay in silent. Like, it'd be awesome if we got together and we could pray together. And, and he goes, what? <laughs> I said, I just want to learn how you pray. Could you teach me how you pray? And he said, sure. And so our, our weekly meetings from t- every Tuesday, we get together Tuesday night after his work. And we sit down and we just, he's taught me how to pray like he prays. And when we sat down, I said, I said, I don't want any of this crazy, you know, Buddhist prayer. Like I'm praying to God, to Jesus. Okay, just get this out on the table. And he goes, okay, we'll pray to your God. No problem. (laughs) And I was like, all right. (laughs) So the ground rules are in. So um, so I've been working this for the last couple of years is just trying to figure out how to be contemplative with God. And much like you were saying, Rick, like, how do you wait on God to speak instead of us telling God what we want? You know, instead of just coming to God with a checklist and saying, God, can you fix these 10 things? Maybe just sit and let God speak to you. And it's amazing what happens when the world gets quiet around me and he brings those ideas to my head or those thoughts to my head. Some people come to mind that I would never have thought of. And I just kind of chase that. God, help. What do you want me to do with that? And how do you want me to deal with this? And then I just, when I'm done chasing that, I bring it back, and, and then something else comes to mind. And I just sort of try to listen to God. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good at going every day for about 40 minutes. About 40 minutes, my mind begins to go crazy, and, and I feel like I have to go answer emails or something. Um, I, my hope is that I can get that up to an hour or an hour and a half and, and really sit with God. So I guess all that to say, not to be controversial about praying with a Buddhist, but all that to say, um, quiet, contemplative meditation is something that brings me into harmony with where Jesus wants me to go rather than me telling Jesus where I want to go and, hey, you can come with me if you want. You know? mm. so. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for just sharing your stories. Um, really, really good. So um, thanks. You guys can-